Price, that's the number one technical indicator. You do best by investing for the longer term. If you can't explain what the business is doing, then that is a huge red flag. Some technological change is going to put you out of business. It really is a genuinely extraordinary situation. Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. On Friday, 19th of March, I spoke to Lynn Alden, founder of Lynn Alden Investment Strategy. Lynn has been conducting investment research in various public and private capacities for over 15 years, and her methods have received global renown. Lynn has 165,000 followers on Twitter and has contributed to sites like Business Insider, Market Watch, CNBC, The Street, and Times Money Magazine. Lynn's edge lies in the intersection between engineering and finance. We discuss how this influences her unique investment approach and how a contrarian slant helps Lynn identify quality, undervalued stocks. Also on the agenda are network effects. We dig into their impact on businesses like Facebook and Amazon and how their influence incited Lynn's Bitcoin bet in April 2020. And after an in-depth look at Lynn's current portfolio, we discuss how stock market investors should navigate the tumultuous interest rate environment. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the podcast, Lynn. It's great to have you on the show. Can you just tell us about where you're based and how your week's been so far? Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm based uh, in New Jersey, uh, United States, hmm. uh, and things are going pretty well here. Uh, how about there? Yeah, not too bad. So I'm based in London. Um, it's been very cold and pretty miserable weather-wise, but we've had a sunny day today. So uh, hope, hopefully looking up uh, on, on the weather front. Um, and nice and busy as well. Uh, markets uh, have been pretty interesting, let's say, over the last few weeks. So we've been uh, kept busy by them for sure. Yeah. Is that the same on your side? Oh, yeah, definitely. And uh, if anything, I mean, it's been like London weather here. <laughs> really? It's been drizzling and cloudy the whole time. Yeah. Well, sorry about that. Um, so uh, I want to get stuck straight into a fascinating topic that was central to a recent blog post I read on your website, and that's network effects. So the piece discussed the phenomenon in relation to Bitcoin, which we'll get into explicitly uh, later on in the interview. But firstly, why do you think network effects are one of the most powerful growth drivers for any potential investment? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, if you back up for a second, uh, you know, there are companies have economic moats, or at least uh, really high quality companies. Uh, and this was a topic mm. popularized by Warren Buffett that basically, you know, if, if a company finds an opportunity to have really good returns on invested capital, it's natural that other companies will want to come in uh, and basically, uh, you know, kind of lead to market efficiency and take some of those returns. And it kind of, it, it adds more competition and it drives down the average return of capital for that industry. And so what some investors like Buffett look for is companies that establish, you know, some sort of edge that prevents like, you know, being a commodity market or being something that other uh, companies can come in and replicate or displace. And, you know, you can have a strong brand you can have economies of scale, you can have unique assets, things like that. Uh, and one of the most powerful ones happens to be a network effect, which is basically the phenomenon where the more people use it, the more valuable it gets per user, and therefore it becomes like a, a sucking force. It just sucks everyone into that platform. It makes it really hard to start up a competitor. And an example would be, say, Facebook, where you know it got to a critical mass of people uh, to the extent it just became the de facto social network. And even if you make your own social network, it's almost impossible to go in and basically make a better Facebook. Even if you 
definitely had a you know slightly better interface and made some various improvements, maybe made privacy improvements. It's really hard to, to suck those members off because it's, it's kind of a chicken and the egg problem, right? So you, you have trouble building a user base because there's no users there. Uh, and it's just really, really hard to get that flywheel started. And so that applies to you know exchanges around the world. That applies to uh, you know credit card companies where merchants only accept popular ones and you know, users will only use cards that are accepted by merchants. And so it's really hard to start, say, a new credit card. Uh, and so we, we've seen over the past decade in particular that the emergence of network effects has been arguably the most powerful mode around. Yeah. Okay, great. And to what extent are you looking for network effects in potential equity investments? Is that one of the first things you're looking for? Well, certainly for tech-related things. Mm. You know, it's one of those things where it really depends on the type of company. So I'm generally looking for some type of moat. Uh, now, there are some exceptions, like if I'm doing a commodity play or something like that, then, you know, you're not, not really going to get moats other than, you know, low cost of production. Mm-hmm. Uh, but overall, if I'm looking for kind of a long-term compounder, like a long-term buy and hold uh, equity investment, I'm generally looking for some type of moat, whether it's a network effect or whether it's economies of scale or something other that allows them to have uh, persistently high returns on invested capital. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, as I said, it's a fascinating topic and we'll get into it in detail and we'll apply it actually to Bitcoin as sort of a case study and we'll dig into that in greater detail uh, shortly. But if we can just circle back here, I'm keen to understand your background and what you do on a day-to-day basis. So it seems your your expertise are both a mixture of engineering and finance and investment more specifically. And I understand you studied the former at university with your master's degree focusing on engineering, economics, and financial modeling. I hope I've got that right. So even at university, had you already decided that you would look to pursue both of these passions? Uh, in a way, yes. And so you know, when I was very young, I had an interest in investing. That was kind of my, my first uh, passion. When it came time to go to university, I also, you know, I was interested in technology uh, and, you know, just engineering has a very practical path to, uh, you know, pretty high um, income. And, and it just, it was a very kind of interesting field to me. And so uh, I ended up going to university for electrical engineering uh, and then came out and worked uh, in the field for a while. But then, uh, you know, then I, I got a master's degree uh, part-time to, you know, emphasize that more managerial, more finance uh, side of engineering. And so my my career shifted to more towards, you know, running the operations of an engineering facility, uh, you know, running teams, uh, doing the, the financial modeling, you know, behind some of the engineering decisions we make and kind of blending those passions. Uh, and then along the side, I've always, you know, I've been investing ever since I was a kid. And so it's always been a very strong passion of mine. And so, yeah, basically the intersection of technology and, you know, uh, things related to finance and specifically investing has always kind of been my, the sweet spot for me. Hmm. And to what extent do you think your engineering background gives you a maybe slightly differentiated uh, perspective on financial markets? Would that be would that be fair? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it basically the thing that they have in common is that it's a very quantitative background, hmm. uh, and engineers uh, have just you know one of the more rigorous uh, mathematical backgrounds that you can have. Basically, engineering kind of teaches you to think a certain way. So you, you look at a system and then you break it down into parts. And then you basically solve those parts, you know, independently and then put them back together and make sure the full system works. Uh, and so kind of applying that to investing uh, is just somewhat of a different mindset. It's kind of a, just a very kind of rigorous mindset. And in particular, one of my fields of, of specialty was control systems analysis. And so, you know, you have this, this system with, you know, countless inputs and outputs. Uh, and whenever, you know, something pushes against the system, the system has a variety of responses to basically deal with that. You know, when I analyze macro conditions, I, I generally treat it like a control system 
where if certain things break, we have certain predictable policy responses, whether from fiscal authorities or from monetary authorities. And I feel that a lot of investors often miss those policy responses and they basically see the outcome playing out and then they, they don't fully take into account some of the policy responses that are going to happen. Uh, and so my analysis kind of approaches that like, like it would like a control system. Mm, yeah, okay. That makes a lot of sense. And um, if we move on to sort of your website and what you do day to day, you referenced that you've been producing investment research for over 15 years in various public and private capacities. So aside from your own portfolio and managing the investments there, can you tell us about the other investment work that you do? Yeah, so I mean, that started a long time ago as a hobby where I would have a blog, I'd post, um, you know, just my thoughts on investing, the stock analysis I'm doing. Uh, and I eventually sold that to a larger publisher and I took a break. And then in 2016, I started, you know, my uh, Lynn Alden investment strategy, uh, which is a, a more professional approach towards providing investment research, uh, this time towards, uh, you know, both retail investors and institutional investors. Uh, and so that basically just, you know, kind of takes up a notch and, and just, uh, you know, focuses on kind of a broader set of investments uh, and with a, a kind of a more formal analysis approach. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. And I think it's keen, or at least I'm keen to stress here that, you know, this is investment research that is resonating with a lot of people. I think that's evident by the publishers that have surfaced the content. I mean, you've been cited on MarketWatch, CNBC, Times Money Magazine, and uh, I think you've appeared on various podcasts and YouTube channels. You've got the Investors Podcast, Opto Sessions now, of course, and uh, Real Vision as well. So what is it, do you think, about your investment research that resonates with so many people? I think it's a combination of a couple of things. I mean, one of the themes that I do is I try to provide institutional level research, but then I use it in a language uh, that retail investors can understand. Mm. Uh, and of course, there's going to be there's going to be a range of people uh, that how they consume the content. Uh, but basically, I try to explain things in plain English, uh, and I also like to incorporate financial history. And so, you know, I, I've been inspired of, uh, by a number of investors. And for example, Ray Dalio's approach of the long-term business cycle, uh, the long-term debt cycle really resonated with me. And so I've, uh, you know, done a lot of work on that and kind of tying into how this period, uh, you know, kind of matches certain things in history and, and kind of the, the outcomes we can sort of expect. And so it's, you know, it goes down to one of those things where mm-hmm. history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. And I think because we've been in such an unprecedented, you know, uh, you know, macro situation for, you know, at least a year, but really going back further than that, uh, you know, a lot of people are just feel like it's unprecedented and it, that it's kind of hard to navigate. Uh, whereas, you know, kind of pointing out periods of history where it's actually kind of been like this before, I think kind of resonates with people and, and helps us get through this. Yeah, I'd absolutely agree with that. And, and uh, explaining it in plain English is key and something that actually is difficult to find sometimes uh, in investment media in general. So um, so I think that really helps you stand out. And there's some great content on the website as well. But also in your newsletter, I recently signed up. Um, I read on your website, I think you've got tens of thousands of readers on there. Is there anything about your newsletter content that you think sets you apart from other newsletters out there? Because there's a lot of them. I think, again, it's just that is that taking the concepts that are moving markets today and basically explaining just how they fit, you know, what is happening in kind of real terms that anyone can understand. And so, uh, you know, the newsletter has like 70,000 readers uh, and that ranges from, you know, retirees that are just looking for an idea of what's happening with their money uh, to young professionals, uh, all the way up through family offices, institutional investors. And so basically by having that kind of sweet spot between uh, really sophisticated research and uh, research that people can understand, uh, it basically has that kind of really broad appeal where 
there's a, a pretty wide spectrum of you know kind of experience levels that make use of that research and so that allows it to spread pretty quickly yeah absolutely okay great and we'll, we'll include a link in the episode description to help people find that newsletter and just the content on your website more generally let's move on to current markets now so i've got a few questions here to i think help set the context which should uh, make it easier i think to get into your investment approach and your philosophy there uh, that i'm also keen to discuss during the interview so firstly the fed's dovish stance a couple of days ago seems to have soothed some earlier fears regarding a possible rate hike so possibly positive in the short term uh, for markets and equity markets more specifically but how do you expect this to play out particularly for global equity markets over the medium to long term uh, so overall yeah they're pushing back on the idea that they're going to uh, preemptively raise rates uh, and so Powell's made it pretty clear that they plan to have uh, you know core PCE inflation uh, reach the moderate uh, you know, two percent or higher range for a period of time before they'd even consider raising rate or you know reducing QE, uh, and that they would uh, telegraph those things well in advance. And so that kind of pushed back on on the market that was beginning to price in some some rate hikes. At the same time, this morning uh, the Fed announced that they're not going to extend uh, the SLR rules change for banks, uh, although they are open to commentary about uh, longer term uh, changes to basically make sure that the plumbing, the financial plumbing continues to work well. And so overall, what we're seeing is that that the Fed is kind of threading a needle where they're trying to stay accommodative, uh, but they're also, uh, you know, it's kind of funny because if you look at how dovish they are, it's all relative. And so holding rates at zero and, and buying uh, over $100 billion uh, per month in QE, you know, a few years ago, that'd be called the most dovish thing in the world. But actually, relative to the amount of fiscal policy that's happening and, and the amount of treasury issuance, uh, it's actually you know kind of somewhat hawkish compared to other central banks that are doing more explicit yield curve control, that are talking more directly about controlling the long end of their curves. And so overall, what we're seeing is that the Fed was arguably the most dovish central bank in 2020, just you know partially due to the size of their asset purchases. Uh, but as we've we've shifted into 2021 here, uh, you know the Fed's kind of taking a back seat to uh, other central banks. And so we've seen a consolidation and a little bit of an uptick in the dollar. Uh, and and we've seen some pressure on markets and particularly growth stocks. And so overall, uh, what I see is that likely to some extent, this this growth to value rotation that we've been seeing is, is likely set to continue for a time. Uh, but it'll largely depend on what happens with the treasury market and whether or not there is sufficient appetite to absorb the amount of issuance that comes, especially later this year after the treasury general account gets drawn down. Mm. Yeah, okay, absolutely. And um, that's interesting about the uh, growth to value pivot. I mean, do you see that continuing throughout 2021 into into the next year? Or do you think we could flip back to growth in the short to medium term? Uh, so I, th- I still think that likely has room to continue for, for you know, the next uh, several months. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to watch things pretty closely here because, you know, this recent uh, week might be a little bit of a pivot back towards uh, growth catching up a little bit, but we'll see. Yeah. Uh, just because some of those names are pretty oversold. Uh, and so what I'm kind of focusing on is, so we, we've had a lot of carnage in some of those growth stock names. And so I've actually used it as an opportunity to start going through them and finding ones uh, that I like. And so uh, you know, I think a lot of the, say, hyper growth stocks, like the unprofitable, super high value stocks, uh, those are the ones that have been most hit by this rise in treasury yields, uh, just because you know th- those are very heavily reliant on extremely low discount rates. For the the high valuations that they achieved in the middle of 2020, 
Whereas if you look at, say, growth at a reasonable price stocks, uh, you know, stocks that are profitable, stocks that, you know, have decent growth, uh, you know, but that have cooled off a little bit, I am finding that some of those are getting back to a, a somewhat more interesting level. Uh, an example would maybe be Adobe, uh, right? So they're, you know, they, they've been around for over three decades, uh, but they, you know, they've they recently, you know, in, in the past several years shifted to a, a subscription model which has, you know, uh, 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 brightened up their growth prospects. Uh, and they became quite heated in mid-2020, uh, and they've since cooled off. Uh, and But now as growth continues, uh, they are getting somewhat more interesting, kind of the top end of the, the reasonable valuation range, in my opinion, whereas before they were, uh, I would say, overvalued. Uh, and so there are a lot of names like that that I'm starting to look through. So overall, for me, what I'm what I'm finding value in is is both the value side of things and kind of that that middle area of of growth at a reasonable price. Yeah. Okay. Great. And I want to get into sort of how you're understanding value and valuating equities and the methodology that you that you use there more deeply uh, later on. But if we if we stick with current markets just for the second, and if we actually turn our minds to to bonds rather than equities. We're seeing possibly the largest correction, I think, in US bonds over the last 25 years. But with interest rates set not to be hiked for, for at least the time being, can we be a little bit optimistic or more optimistic about fixed income? Or is this simply a, a short-term reprieve, in your opinion? So I still be very cautious about it. Um, and there's a bunch of different forces that can factor into that. I mean, in the near term, it can get some help from the, uh, the Treasury General account being drawn down. Mm. Uh, but as you look out later into, say, the second half of this year, uh, I think there's, you know, there's, there's going to be more treasury issuance, and that could be hard for the, the private market to absorb. In addition, we have a, a little bit of a landmine coming up in late spring, because due to low base effects of the headline CPI that happened in uh, just starting in March, but especially in April and May of last year, uh, we're likely to get pretty high headline CPI prints uh, in April and May uh, of this year. Uh, and uh, the Fed has already kind of front run that by saying, you know, they've referenced the base effects. They've talked about it being transient. They're going to try to talk down, uh, you know, how that would affect, uh, you know, treasuries, how that would affect their policy decisions. Uh, but it remains to be seen how the bond market's going to interpret that if they've already fully looked through that uh, or if that kind of leads to a little bit more of a knee jerk uh, sell off. Because I don't know if the treasury market's going to want to be at, say, 1.7%. Uh, when you're potentially getting a headline CPI print of three percent, uh, and so there are kind of a couple landmines, and so overall, I don't, I still don't view long duration treasuries as being particularly exciting at this current time. Uh, but uh, I, after this strong move, I have less conviction that it's going to continue upward at the same rate that it has been. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's a nice way to sum it up. Uh, all right. That's that's really clear on the bond markets then. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'm now keen to sort of better understand your investment strategy and, and what sets it apart from the majority of the market. Um, firstly, then, an open-ended and quite abstract question: How would you characterize your investment philosophy? I focus on primarily fundamental investing in equities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so basically analyzing their growth rate, their balance sheet, their economic modes, uh, you know, their strategic positioning, uh, along with uh, you know, uh, then taking into account a global macro overlay over that. And so uh, you know, there are, say, stock pickers that don't heavily take into account the policy environment. Uh, and then there are macro investors that, you know, uh, use a variety of different asset classes, but that often don't go down into individual stocks. And so I, I kind of in the in the middle of that Venn diagram, where I focus on long term investing in companies primarily, 
but then uh, use the macro conditions to kind of uh, figure out what sectors I want to uh, emphasize, what sectors could be impacted by different sort of uh, fiscal monetary policy or, or environmental conditions. Uh, and then I, I also use other asset classes to uh, round out that portfolio. Uh, but really, uh, the equities and the commodity space are really uh, where my emphasis is. Yeah, interesting. So would it be fair to say that it starts off sort of bottom up, but then you need to appreciate the macro environment and the themes that could be impacting those stocks as a secondary or a, a next consideration? Exactly, especially because, so I, I've described this as being a very macro heavy environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, if an investor, uh, you know, there are other decades where, you know, an investor could safely ignore, uh, you know, macro conditions. Yeah. Uh, but because we're at these major pivot points and because policy response is such a large impact on markets, I mean, you know, this, we saw basically th- this past year, the biggest economic shock in decades, uh, and then also the, the biggest uh, policy response since the 1940s uh, in, in many countries around the world. Uh, and so not factoring those effects into account uh, really kind of, you know, leaves an investor somewhat blind when they're trying to figure out what sectors, what companies are going to do well. Uh, and, you know, in addition, for example, if you look at the United States, uh, you know, a very large percentage of income for people is coming from government sources now. Uh, and so it's, imp- it's imperative to watch what's happening with the fiscal environment uh, to determine how that can affect different uh, consumer spending habits that then ripple through all sorts of companies that are tied to that, whether it's the banks that are making loans to different entities or whether it's uh, you know consumer brands and things like that. And so overall, I find that that blend to be really important, especially in this environment. Yeah, completely, uh, completely see how it's kind of more prominent than perhaps it's ever been right now. And um, I want to speak about contrarian investment and, and that approach uh, more broadly, because it feels as if it might be something that influences your, your strategy and your way of thinking. Uh, and I read your recent, well, semi-recent piece published uh, on your website about contrarian investment. I think it was published at the end of last year. Uh, and you compare the average investor to every major asset class. So interestingly, the average investor underperforms every single asset class with just a 1.9% 20-year annualized return. I think the data was taken between 98 and 2018. So why, in your opinion, does the average investor underperform so significantly and so consistently? Mainly because they have a pattern of buying high and and selling low. Mm -hmm. After something goes up in price and is doing well, they get more comfortable with it, they get into it, and they they don't have, say, a rigorous valuation methodology. They don't have, uh, you know, kind of the ability to stomach downturn. And so when that investment eventually turns down, uh, that's when they often get emotional and, and end up selling it. This also applies to fund managers, uh, even in, in a more institutional context. So basically what happens with fund managers is if they have a really good couple years, uh, you know, everyone allocates to them. Uh, and that's often when they're actually statistically more likely to uh, you know, uh, consolidate for a bit, not do as well, because maybe, for example, a lot of their stocks got you know quite expensive during that time, and they didn't pivot enough, uh, or something like that. Whereas the, on the other end of the spectrum, if an inv- if a investment manager has poor returns, uh, investors often draw their capital away from them. Uh, but that's often when their strategy actually starts, uh, you know, turning around a little bit. And so, whether or not it's retail investors or, to a lesser extent, institutional investors, uh, it's just it's it's very hard to invest. Uh, without a pro-cyclical approach, which is basically that these people keep going in and, and buying tops and, and selling at bottoms. And so it takes a, a kind of a, a longer term view in order to reverse that and, and buy things when they're cheap and sell things when they're expensive, which is one of those things that it sounds 
easy to say, but hard to do. And one of the reasons, uh, it's actually one of the few areas where retail investors have an advantage over institutional investors is because, you know, any investor that basically has to mark to market, that has to have these quarterly, you know, returns, and basically they can't afford to be long for several quarters in a row. They can't say, okay, I don't know what's going to happen in the next six months, but I'm, I'm confident what's going to happen in the next three to five years. Uh, they don't have the luxury to do that. Whereas a retail investor, uh, you know, particularly a disciplined one, actually kind of does. And so basically, the how we've measured performance, how we incentivize performance, uh, is just kind of a very short term focus. And so that's just how the industry has morphed uh, over the decades. Yeah, yeah, completely. I guess key to all of that, though, is the word you mentioned there, discipline. Um, I mean, if people buy at the right time, they, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to sell at the right time, I suppose. And being uh, kind of wedded to your conviction and kind of understanding why you went into the trade and the investment in the first place and sticking with that is is crucial and something that maybe can't be leveled at the majority of retail investors. Exactly. I mean, I think it's really that combination of having a, a source of permanent capital that, that can't be drawn away from you uh, and having a very disciplined approach. And so, for example, if you look at Warren Buffett, I mean, that's that's why he runs a company rather than a fund, because mm. the, the capital is is permanently, permanently there uh, rather than, you know, him facing redemptions and things like that. And so, uh, you know, basically investors have to use uh, the environment they're in uh, but overall, uh, you know, when you have certain advantages, like you have, say, you know, your own capital to invest, you then have the luxury to basically make these longer-term decisions uh, and ignore that, you know, multi-quarter, multi-month noise. Yeah, interesting. I've not, I've not thought about Berkshire and sort of Buffett in in that way before. Was that a conscious decision Buffett made so that he could take a longer-term perspective? Uh, I believe so. I mean, he, before he ran the company, he did run a fund, mm. and after it did extraordinarily well. Uh, he gave the money back to investors, mm. uh, and then eventually he got into what he did now. Uh, some of those early moves, I mean, there are people that specialize in, say, Buffett history uh, more than I do. Uh, but you know, his actual the acquisition of Berkshire was somewhat of an aggressive takeover, uh, and so that the, mm. the actual business, yeah, yeah, the actual business itself wasn't very successful. Uh, but of course, it became a holding company for much more successful businesses over time. Yeah, okay. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And a uh, slightly reductive question here, but would you describe yourself as a contrarian investor? Uh, to an extent, yeah. I mean, not a knee-jerk contrarian. Uh, you know, there are certain times where, uh, you know, the consensus makes sense and you want to ride those long-term trends. You don't want to just always buy what's out of favor. Uh, however, there are certain turning points uh, or certain extremes where it's important to take a step back and maybe start looking in the other direction. And so whether or not that's, you know, for example, in, in summer 2020, uh, when tech stocks were utterly soaring and other stocks were languishing, that's when I said, okay, I'm actually more interested in these other stocks. I mean, I think some of these tech stocks got overvalued. I'm more interested in, say, the banks or the energy that, that absolutely nobody wants. Uh, and, you know, then when those other things start doing very, very well, and no one wants tech stocks. I'm like, okay, well, I, I, st I still think a lot of tech stocks are expensive, uh, but some of them are getting somewhat interesting again. And so it really kind of is looking around for things, especially through the lens of valuation. So if you're always looking for things that are reasonably priced, it kind of gives you a natural contrarian uh, slant, I, I would say. And so that's, that's how I approach it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. And how, how then specifically do you identify the companies that are undervalued versus those stocks that are simply cheap for good reason? Uh, so I use different types of screens. Uh, and you know, uh, a popular one was demonstrated by Joel Greenblatt, uh, a well-known value investor. 
Uh, and his formula uh, that he popularized was to rank companies by high returns on invested capital uh, and low valuation. Uh, and so, uh, you know, basically what that does is it combines a quality metric uh, with a valuation metric. Uh, because last thing you want to do is buy a, a bad company that's cheap, right? Because it's, it's probably just going to get worse and it's going to get cheaper. Uh, whereas buying a higher quality company uh, for cheap is generally the ticket to really good returns. But then, of course, the question becomes, what is quality? And so there are some objective ways to measure quality, like, for example, returns on invested capital, which is if you have persistently high returns, then you're generally, uh, you know, you have some sort of economic moat, uh, your business is profitable. Uh, you know, it's something's going right for you. Now, of course, I, I still think it's important to then overlay qualitative metrics on them. So say, okay, well, is there something in the next five years that might totally take that away? Or is it is it something that's more durable? In addition, I, you know, strongly look at growth metrics as well. And so it's kind of like, uh, you know, uh, growth, uh, return on invested capital and valuation. And so basically, I just look at a variety of indicators, uh, management, uh, balance sheet, all sorts of things like that. And find companies where overall, I think that the, the forward risk-adjusted returns based on a discounted cash flow model are attractive, uh, but then also then overlaying the, the global environment. And so, for example, if, you're, if you have a slowing uh, GDP growth, then you generally want to tilt towards those more defensive sectors. Uh, and if you're getting a more cyclical recovery, uh, then you can bet more aggressively on some of those uh, more cyclical stocks. Yeah. Okay. And the uh, discounted cash flow analysis that that won't be something that's familiar to to all of the listeners. I wonder whether you could sort of explain the basics of that for anyone listening in. Uh, so that's basically a valuation approach that was uh, developed decades and decades ago. That essentially says, okay, any investment that produces cash flows, if you're trying to determine the fair value of that investment, uh, it's equal to the all all the expected forward cash flows that you expect that investment to have uh, discounted to the present value. Mm. And what I mean by discounted is that, like, let's say uh, you could you could be given a hundred dollars this year or a hundred dollars three years from now. Like, which one would you pick? Of course, you'd pick the one that's in the near term because you could take that money and compound it most likely, and basically have more than a hundred dollars in three years. And so, what you can do is you can model out all the cash flows you expect to happen, uh, and then for every year they are in the future, you discount them back into their present value. And so for example, $100, uh, you know, three years from now might only be worth $75 to you. So you'll say, okay, I'll count that as $75. And so when you do that, uh, you basically, uh, you have a fair value. You basically, you're, you're willing to uh, put forth a certain amount of capital today with the expectation that you get more capital in the future. And, and you can get a pretty specific number for what you're willing to pay. Now, of course, you could be wrong about the growth expectations of that company and therefore, you could have more or less uh, forward cash flows than you expected. And so that's why it's important to have a margin of safety to basically use conservative estimates and, and try to underpay uh, wherever possible. And then there, are, of course, there are various valuation metrics that can make that easier. That's kind of the underlying foundation uh, for why some of those valuation metrics make sense. But then you can kind of simplify it and say, uh, you know, I want to find companies with an attractive price to earnings to growth ratio, mm -hmm. so peg ratio. That was kind of the, the, the Peter Lynch method where he says, I want to buy stocks that have a higher growth rate than their price to earnings ratio. And that's kind of a simple way of, if you can find that, then you're getting very attractive uh, discounted cash flow analysis stocks. Uh, and of course, you have to change that based on prevailing interest rates and things like that. And so one of my rules of thumbs, if I'm looking at a, 
growth at a reasonable price stock, I generally want to find a dividend adjusted peg ratio of below two wherever possible. Right. Okay. Because I'm interested to know how difficult that is to do, because I guess before the recent pivot to value, we had a long sort of succession of uh, investment into growth and growth stocks. And we've talked about the sort of hyper inflated valuations of some of these companies, some of these tech companies specifically that weren't making any money, weren't bringing in any profit and very little revenue. How difficult does that sort of environment make it for you to value some of these companies properly? That's only made it challenging for a number of value investors. Uh, and, uh, you know, for example, I referenced Joel Greenblatt. I mean, he's talked about that and how some of that was off of his radar because some of those companies were just new. Right. So so they behaved very differently than the average company over the past, you know, five decades. So my sweet spot has been trying to focus on the on the profitable versions of those companies. And so, for example, I was not early to something like Amazon, which has, you know, until recently, uh, you know, mostly avoided making profits. Uh, however, I did gravitate to Adobe, the one I mentioned before, which is basically that it, it is profitable uh, and it, it does have high growth mm -hmm. and, and high valuations. Yeah. Uh, but I have more of a, a foundation for how I'm going to uh, invest in it. And so overall, I mean, some things I just put in the too hard pile and say, okay, it could be really profitable one day, but uh, it's just outside of my scope of expertise. Uh, whereas other ones, I'm, I'm able to go in and say, okay, it's growth at a reasonable price. Uh, so I'm not like I say, a super early stage investor. Uh, but when I see a very strong growth trend, when I see a, a strong economic moat, uh, when I see, you know, maybe it's expensive, but the expected five to 10 year growth potential is very high, uh, I'm happy to go into that sort of investment. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. Okay, great. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And if we return and sort of take a step back and consider your investment strategy more holistically, uh, particularly now we've sort of established that I guess there's a contrarian slant to it, uh, if, if that would be fair to say, are you always conscious of an exit strategy? Do you know exactly when and at what price you're likely to exit a contrarian position when you enter it? Uh, generally not specifically because so my ideal holding period is actually pretty long. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what I would look for is periods of time where the price deviates too much from my you know fair value calculation. Mm -hmm. uh, and so because I can't predict in advance when that's going to happen, I don't have a specific uh, price or time target. So for example, if I buy a stock at $20, I don't say, okay, when this goes to 40, I'm going to sell it. Because it depends what happens when it gets to 40. If it gets to 43 months from now and the fundamentals didn't change, then yes, I'm probably going to sell that investment. Uh, whereas if it gets to $40 uh, four years from now and the fundamentals have also uh, you know, grown considerably, uh, then maybe it's, you know, that investment is still attractively valued uh, because the, the price is, has just kept up with fundamentals. And so overall, I monitor the investments for times where uh, you know, that the stock price is, in my opinion, overvalued and overbought uh, in kind of the technical terms, uh, and that I, I, I have other areas that I find more attractive, and I'd rather rotate some of that capital into investments that are maybe a little bit more out of favor uh, or that are, that are more reasonably priced. Sure. Okay. And if, if we focus on the current makeup of your, of your portfolio, in terms of asset allocation, firstly, can, can you tell us where you're overweight uh, and underweight subsequently right now? Uh, so I've had overweight equities and underweight uh, bonds mm -hmm. uh, for quite some time. 
Uh, and that's that's largely due to the expectation, which has so far come true, about the, the sheer amount of fiscal mm. expenditure that's happening uh, in places around the world. Uh, I also have been overweight commodities. Uh, and so, uh, you know, since 2018, for example, I've been long uh, uh, gold. Uh, and they've kind of taken different turns in outperforming. So gold did very well from, you know, mid-2018 to mid-2020. Uh, since then, gold has corrected with it, you know, rising real yields, but then you've still had, you've had copper taking off. Uh, uranium uh, equities have been doing well. Uh, energy's been, been you know, kind of catching up from that, that uh, low point that it was in. Uh, Bitcoin's been doing very well since, since, you know, the mid to late 2020 period. Mm-hmm. I, I incorporate that as basically a commodity. And so overall, um, uh, uh, my emphasis has been on global equities, so U.S. equities right. and ex-U.S. Uh, equities, uh, as well as some of those commodity exposures and, and relatively small amounts of, uh, of cash and bonds, basically as a liquidity absorber uh, to basically, if we, if we get volatility events that, that can you know, rebalance into those other assets, uh, but generally you know, being pretty underweight bonds. Yeah, okay, that makes a lot of sense. And if we focus in on your uh, equity exposure specifically, which sectors of the equity market are you most bullish on right now? So overall, I have a variety of, of sectors. However, I have had a uh, somewhat of a value tilt. Uh, and so it's not an extreme value tilt in the sense that I'm, I'm avoiding growth stocks entirely. Uh, but like I said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of focused on some of those growth at a reasonable price stocks, as mm-hmm. well as uh, you know, a lot of those value stocks. And so uh, this past summer, I, I added uh, energy and banks more uh, because they were just very out of favor. Uh, they are starting to get, you know, they, they started to correct in recent days. And so overall, I'm, I'm less enthused about them as I was back then. Uh, but overall, I, I mostly like that that big mix of I like banks, I like energy, I like, uh, you know, uh, broad commodities. Gold, I think, is starting to get a little bit more attractive again after uh, a pretty long stretch of, of weakness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and overall, I still like, uh, you know, just basically diversified, high quality, long term compounding companies. I've been finding value in uh, uh, Japanese equities in particular. Um, I like emerging market exposure, uh, particularly kind of select select areas. Uh, and I've also been very bullish on Bitcoin since, uh, you know, kind of spring 2020. Yeah, interesting. And you, you've mentioned Adobe as, as one sort of specific name you're invested in, but you mentioned Japanese stocks there. Uh, that's particularly sort of interesting area of the market. Can you mention any specific names uh, in the Japanese equity market that you're that you're bullish on right now? Yes, yeah, so I've been bullish on the uh, trading companies, uh, and so they they have these conglomerates uh, that uh, own a variety of they own commodity interests, but then they also own mm-hmm. uh, other things like supermarkets or convenience stores and things like that. They basically have pretty stable cash flows, uh, and so that includes companies like Atochu, uh, Mitsui, uh, companies like that. And so I, I own a pretty diverse basket of those, uh, you know, the, the, say uh, the top four Japanese trading companies. Uh, and they're, they're, if you look back in their history, you know, back in the 90s, they were extremely leveraged, uh, just like most of the Japanese corporate sector. Mm. Uh, but they've since been deleveraging for the past uh, 20 years, where they, they've been reducing their debt to equity ratio. Uh, they've really strengthened their balance sheets. Uh, at the same time, uh, you know, they're companies that generally benefit from re- reflationary environments. So, you know, uh, commodity bull cycles, industrial bull cycles. And so they did very well in the 2000s. Uh, where you had, you know, the, you had very strong emerging market performance. You had a weaker dollar. You had good commodity uh, performance, uh, and so they did very well. And then for the past decade, uh, as commodities have done terribly, they struggled in that environment. Basically, global growth was slower. 
We've been in a strong dollar environment, weak commodity prices. Uh, but because they did so much deleveraging, uh, they actually they held up pretty well. So they've had this kind of decade-long consolidation where they've remained profitable, they've grown dividends, but they haven't been too exciting. And they, they generally trade at very cheap valuations. And so my base case is that probably the 2020s decade is, is, is likely going to be better for them than the previous decade in the sense that I think commodity prices will on average be stronger. Uh, I think that they've built really good foundations because of their deleveraging uh, and that they're, they remain pretty attractive, just long-term compounders and, and dividend payers. Yeah, interesting. I think that's an area of the market that Buffett's at least got some exposure to or, or did. I, d- I don't know whether you, whether you know that. Um, that was something I think I read about about six months ago now. Uh, he'd, he'd taken quite big uh, positions in a couple of Japanese trading firms, and I forget their names. It could be, could be the two that you mentioned. Um, yeah, he went into the top five. So he did a Tochu. Mm-hmm. I think that was his biggest position, but he, he went into the top five. Um, yes. Great. All right. Well, I, I said we'd return to network effects uh, at the start of the interview. So I think we can finish the, the main body of the interview with a focus on those. Um, and one of the most cited examples of successful network disruption is Facebook's displacement of MySpace, something that you mentioned earlier on in the interview. Um, they displaced MySpace as the leading social network in the US. Um, and I read a, a recent piece again on your on your website that discussed this in greater detail. But it seemed there were two key reasons why Facebook was able to supplant MySpace. Firstly, how did Facebook's use uh, of the consolidation of a specific niche, and when I when I say niche, they they built up a, a strong uh, engagement with U.S. colleges and the social network. Um, the social network sort of available in that specific space. How did they use that trend to their advantage? Sure. And the reason I use that MySpace example was because that's often, that's kind of like go-to uh, uh, example of a network effect that got disrupted yeah. and people often cite it. And, and people are often worried that that their investment is going to be the next MySpace. That's what they often, the next MySpace is kind of the the, mm-hmm. the thing you want to avoid being. Uh, and so one thing I point out is that, first of all, MySpace actually had a very small lead over Facebook. And so they started less than a year earlier. It wasn't like, say, they were around for five years. They built up a huge network, and then Facebook came in and beat them. Really, they just had a pretty small head start, uh, which, which should have been enough, uh, but really wasn't. And so they had a pretty thin lead to begin with. Uh, and so they started out strong. Uh, but then there are, there are a couple main steps that Facebook took to overtake them. Uh, so one is, uh, you know, if you're, if you're trying to disrupt a network, it's hard to be everything for everyone. Uh, and so just like how Amazon started by selling books, uh, Facebook started by, by being on the college scene. Uh, and even there, it started in the Ivy League colleges and then it spread to, to other colleges. And so basically, they, they dominated a small niche that they were then able to expand from rather than you know, starting off by opening themselves up to everyone. Uh, and so literally, I mean, I, I remember I had an account back when only it was like you, you needed like a college email address to have an account. Uh, and so that, that's how they initially started. Uh, and then there's their second wave of growth was, mm. uh, so if you look at MySpace's history, uh, you know, the, the original founders, uh, sold it, uh, to a larger company. Uh, I think it was 2005. That's probably the beginning of the end, right? Cause then, then you have, you have just less engaged, uh, management, you could argue. Uh, and then, uh, in 2007, the iPhone, uh, was launched. Uh, and that's also when Facebook and MySpace were roughly neck and neck. Uh, and that was that was the peak year for MySpace valuation was 2007. 
uh, because after that, uh, you know, the mobile scene became very, very important for social networking. And Facebook, uh, you know, quickly uh, was on that train. Their app was very mobile heavy, uh, whereas MySpace was slow to adapt to the mobile scene. And so the general rule, uh, you know, that's often cited about networks, uh, you know, uh, an example I use is Jeff Booth, the author, often references this rule, is that in order to disrupt a network effect, you need something like a 10x advantage over them. You can't just, you can't make a slightly better product. Like I can't make a slightly better Facebook and hope to, to challenge Facebook's network effect. I have to do something so outrageously better uh, that it's able to s- start sucking customers from that network effect. Uh, and that's why it's extremely difficult to disrupt one. It- it's hard to come up with a solution that's 10 times better than someone else. And of course, I mean, that, you know, that could be, that, that's a rounding. That just basically is meant to show the magnitude. Like you can't be a little bit better. You can't be twice as better. You have to be like, you know, 5, 10, 15 times better. You have to have something that's so kind of clearly differentiated and better that people switch to it, even though it's new. And even though, you know, it doesn't have the existing advantages. And so Facebook's 10x better moment uh, was the fact that they were mobile ready. Uh, and so, you know, you had, your, you had your social network with you in your pocket rather than only back in your, you know, your desktop computer. And so that allowed them to basically leapfrog MySpace and, and become the dominant social network effect. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I guess um, there's a fragility to the the safety and the consolidation that that network effect is able to achieve up until I guess they achieve a level of dominance. Uh, if we use Michael Saylor's definition, that dominance benchmark would be a firm valued at a hundred billion dollars. Um, history would suggest that it's almost impossible to displace a company once they've achieved that that sort of valuation. Is that fair? Firstly, in your opinion, yeah, that's what he argued in his book, The Mobile Wave. Uh, and so overall. Um, you know, we saw that it, it, MySpace is often cited as an example that got disrupted, but they were actually only worth $12 billion when they got disrupted. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing I keep pointing out that they, they still got disrupted pretty early on in their life cycle uh, and by a company that was only several months behind them uh, in inception. Uh, and so it wasn't as mm-hmm. big of a disruption as, as people make it out to be. And it, it shows that, you know, uh, you know, that kind of lead can be disrupted. Uh, but it's much, much harder to go against, a, you know, a, a truly large network. Uh, for example, I, I cited in that article that, that years later, uh, Google tried to go after Facebook, you know, with Google Plus. They tried to be the next big social media uh, company, and they were unable to break into Facebook's network lead because by that point, Facebook was so large and dominant that that Google Plus was unable to really be any sort of viable competitor. Yeah, completely. Okay, well, if we move it uh, explicitly away from equities and companies, an asset that could be demonstrating sort of early signs of network effects and certainly being able to uh, leverage those at least in its early life, relatively early life, uh, and that would be Bitcoin. Um, you bought into Bitcoin this time last year, I think in April 2020, again, uh, from some information that I read on, on your website. So to what extent was that decision based on your analysis of the asset's network effects? So the network effect was the majority decision to move into it. Uh, and I had previously analyzed Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies back in late 2017. Uh, and my, my conclusion at the time was that it's a very neat industry. Uh, there's a lot going on there. But I, I had two main cautions uh, and reasons why I did not invest myself. Uh, and the first one was uh, this price euphoria. Uh, so you know that was that was late 2017. It was it was November 2017, and so there's a very big run up in in a lot of those assets. 
Uh, and so just, I guess, going back to my contrarian slant, I was saying that, you know, this, you know, the, the, the amount that these assets are overbought and euphoric is hard to overstate and therefore, you know, certainly be careful out there. And then two, uh, I said, that, you know, one of the main problems with, with cryptocurrencies is that even though any, any individual cryptocurrency is, is finite, generally, uh, there's no shortage of the number of people that can make new cryptocurrencies because, you know, ever since Satoshi Nakamoto showed the world how to do it, uh, you know, he solved the hard problem, you know, doing it first. Uh, but now it's easy to replicate. You can literally just copy it, make your own changes. Uh, and I can, I can launch like, you know, Lincoin. Uh, and uh, so the, mm-hmm. the problem there is that now there's thousands and thousands of cryptocurrencies. And so my concern at the time was that, you know, this whole space could become heavily diluted. Where even if it even if a trillion dollars in capital pours into it, what if it just disperses among so many different coins that there's there's no protocol that's able to really kind of gather, uh, you know, a sufficient market share to be, uh, you know, interesting. And that was especially at the time where Bitcoin's uh, dominance was falling. So there's a there's a metric called uh, Bitcoin dominance, which is basically Bitcoin's market share of the overall cryptocurrency ecosystem. Uh, and and throughout 2017, it had a pretty big decline because we saw. Bitcoin split into Bitcoin Cash. Uh, you know, basically there was a hard fork, uh, and then you saw uh, the rise of Ethereum. You saw the rise of all these uh, ICOs, and so Bitcoin was kind of diluted among these these thousands of of you know just competitors. Uh, and so I I just you know, it was about seven thousand at the time when I analyzed it, uh, seven thousand dollars for Bitcoin, and I said you know I'm going to sit this one out. Uh, if you want to have say one percent. You know, have at it, but uh, it's hard. You know, I don't find that the risk reward is very attractive at this time. Uh, and of course, we we got a blow off top mm-hmm. or went much higher, but then it collapsed, and the whole industry uh, faced a really rough time in in 2018, 2019. Uh, but over that time, I started to kind of watch Bitcoin's network effect and see that it actually was strengthening. And so, uh, basically, it, its dominance rose, and so the percentage of crypto market cap uh, in Bitcoin uh, increased compared to a lot of these competitors. Uh, Bitcoin solidly won out over the hard forks. Uh, so there, there are you know, a handful of major hard forks, including Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin Satoshi Vision. Uh, and, and Bitcoin's overall market capitalization and hash rate uh, dwarfed those forks. They basically were, were unsuccessful forks. They were unable to compete with Bitcoin's network effect of the nodes and the, and the hash rate from the miners. Uh, and so over that time, Bitcoin kind of just demonstrated that it actually does have a pretty strong network effect uh, compared to these thousands of competitors. Uh, and we also saw the build out of institutional uh, custody uh, solutions. We also saw the improvement of hardware wallets, uh, including uh, you know hardware wallets that only do Bitcoin rather than do uh, you know all the different tokens out there. Uh, and so when we when we came into 2020 and we had that big sell-off in, in March, uh, you know I was I was focused on what some of the commodities were doing. like for example, I was seeing the liquidity uh, you know crashes causing, not just equities to go down, but pretty much every asset across the board. I was, you know, in particular watching gold and silver at the time. Uh, and uh, I saw that Bitcoin behaved very similarly to gold and silver, which it was clearly having a, a liquidity-driven sell-off. Uh, but overall, I, I found that the fundamentals were much improved compared to when I analyzed it back in late 2017. Uh, and so in April 2020, when we were back on the upswing, it was ironically about $7,000 a coin again, the same price that I passed on it you know, all those years ago. And I said, well, now, you know, I think it's been de-risked. So it's, it's not price euphoric. Uh, the, it, it's solidly beaten out. It's, it's, you know, hard for competitors. Uh, and it's shown that it has a network resiliency and it's got a growing network effect. And so I went long 
uh, and then I kept researching it. And then by the summer of 2020, uh, I, I had very high conviction on it. And so that's been, it's been a successful investment. And now I'm at the stage where I'm, I'm tracking that, that growth profile because it's already done so well. Uh, where now as I'm kind of looking for risks, the downside uh, compared to, you know, just the overall momentum it has to the upside and kind of, you know, considering taking tranches of it off uh, as it, as it's done very well. Mm. And, and those hard forks, essentially they were problematic because I guess some of the market perceived them as an indication that Bitcoin supply was, was infinite, you know, and, and obviously central to Bitcoin's ultimate value is the perception that its supply is finite perceptions those indications have, have largely been found by the market unfounded would that be fair exactly yeah that was a really big test because you had uh some interest like the like the miners and the exchanges wanted to go in the direction of bitcoin cash uh, and basically what, what it came down to was a disagreement about the block size of bitcoin mm. uh, and so uh basically the, the one approach was to increase the block size which increases the transaction throughput uh, but makes it somewhat less decentralized uh, it makes it harder for for individuals to run a full node, uh, whereas uh, Bitcoin, the original, uh, you know, it purposely sacrifices uh, transaction throughput on the base layer. Uh, you can always build secondary layers to basically uh, increase the transaction throughput uh, in favor of uh, you know a very high level of decentralization. Uh, and so uh, there were some, there was a, a pretty sizable community split where where a significant minority of early developers preferred. Uh, the the larger block size version, uh, and so that was kind of a, a real test for the community and the network. Uh, but as that played out over time, it became increasingly clear uh, that you know the market strongly picked original Bitcoin over those various hard forks. It, it preferred the smaller block size, the the higher decentralization. Uh, it, you know, Bitcoin retained most of the miners, so it had a much higher hash rate, meaning it's it's much more secure. It's much it's much harder to attempt a fifty one percent attack on Bitcoin. Uh, than it would be on Bitcoin Cash or Bitcoin Satoshi Vision. Uh, and so basically, it, it just kind of demonstrated that the community really did stick around uh, Bitcoin Core uh, and showed that, you know, basically that the risk of infinite splits or just more and more splits and, and dilution uh, is low. Mm. Yeah, and the number of smaller addresses actually holding Bitcoin has continued to increase. Can you tell us briefly why that's so important? It's important because it shows that it's not just a handful of whales uh, engaging in Bitcoin. And so it's, that's actually one of the, the somewhat misleadingly reported things where, uh, so most asset classes around the world are actually pretty concentrated. And, and one thing I, I point out is that, you know, according to the Federal Reserve, uh, uh, 88% of, of U.S. stocks are owned by the top 10%. And, and the bottom 90% of people pick out, you know, pick through the remaining 12%. Uh, so that's a pretty concentrated asset. And Bitcoin is often cited, you know, some, some extreme statistic like, uh, you know, say 2% of people own 98% of the Bitcoins or something like that. Uh, but there's a couple of nuances there. Uh, so one is, uh, you know, some of the largest addresses uh, for Bitcoin are exchange address mm -hmm. right, and custodian addresses. And they actually represent the holdings of millions of people. So, for example, you know, if you look at, at Bitcoin, uh, the blockchain uh, there's, you know, something like 35 million addresses that have a non-zero amount, uh, whereas Coinbase alone has more people than that. And so basically what if you hold, say, Bitcoin on Coinbase or on Kraken or on another major exchange, uh, you're not your own unique address. You, you hold on their ledger and they have 
you know, millions of customers and they have a handful of addresses that represent those millions of customers. Uh, and so uh, overall, what you want to see generally over time is that, that Bitcoin reaches more and more people rather than just being a plaything of major whales, as they're called, basically major entities in the space. Uh, you generally want to see that, it, that it's reaching more and more people, including people that are not, not financial people. So people that are not just speculating on it, that are, that are using it as, as savings or that are using it as uh, you know, kind of a, a trading vehicle like we see in some emerging markets. Uh, and so overall, basically, you know, seeing that it's gradually becoming more diffused over time as it, as it spreads out from its inception point uh, is pretty important for the health of the network. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's finish the main body of the interview then by looking ahead. I mean, we saw a couple of days ago, Morgan Stanley will be the first bank to offer Bitcoin. Um, we've got uh, Fidelity that have already signaled their intent, their digital assets initiative. So to what extent do you think this is a turning point for the wild-scale adoption of Bitcoin? So 2020 was certainly a year of institutional interest. And so Fidelity had actually been building out their custodian solution for a few years. And they, they, they had one of the, the earliest uh, mine. You know, Fidelity was actually mining Bitcoin years ago as kind of a test, and they still are. Uh, mm. And so Fidelity was really early on board. Uh, we also saw uh, NIDIG. Uh, that's an entity that was created several years ago uh, to custody Bitcoin. Uh, and so, you know, those were kind of building the foundations for the past few years. Uh, but it was really in, in 2020 where we started to see more interest. And so we saw, of course, MicroStrategy came out. That was a small company that said they're going to put their entire treasure reserves into Bitcoin rather than cash. Uh, that, that was an extreme example. But then we saw less extreme examples of companies like Square or Tesla they decided to put five to ten percent of their cash into Bitcoin, uh, and then we've also seen that you know a variety of hedge funds, family offices, uh, and, and endowments and large portfolios have decided that they'll have a non-zero Bitcoin position, and that you know depending mm-hmm. on on the size of their balance sheet and their investment goals, uh, that could be one percent, that could be two percent, that could be five percent, whatever the case may be. But basically, it's increasingly treated as a as a diversifier or as an asset class in its own right. Uh, and so when you have that large pool of capital that suddenly wants a 1% position, uh, that, rep- that represents a lot of demand. Uh, and be- but because we've had the build out of you know, Fidelity and NIDIG and, and, and Gemini and Coinbase and these other kind of custody solutions, uh, th- there's actually a pretty good foundation now uh, for that, in- that institutional capital to flow into it. And so we've seen uh, a pretty significant rise in, in you know, holdings among larger investors. Uh, Bank of New York Mellon came out, uh, you know, in favor of it, and then, as you point out, recently mm-hmm. we have Morgan Stanley on board, uh, and so overall, it's 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 increasingly spread uh, to the higher echelons of finance. We also saw Singapore's largest bank came out and said that they're going to custody it. They're going to have a exchange for accredited and institutional investors, uh, and so it, it's really kind of gone mainstream. Whereas, you know, in the early years, it was highly, you know, it was mainly focused on retail speculation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, well, that, that's absolutely fascinating and uh, really, I guess, really exciting time to be, uh, to be a Bitcoin investor. Um, and uh, if, we, if we finish the interview then uh, with our quick fire question round, so this shouldn't take more than a couple of minutes, the generic list of questions that we ask all of our guests uh, and feel free to answer in as little as one sentence or even one word, if you like. The first question then, what is the top mistake investors make? Buying and selling emotionally. Good. Yeah, definitely heard that one before. Question two, where do you go for investment or economic insights? Do you read specific publishers, for example? 
Uh, so I have a, a pretty wide network of, of information sources. Uh, it used to be years ago, you know, uh, especially before my time, where the problem, you know, basically having information was the advantage. Uh, whereas now it's the case that there's so much information mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, we need to basically synthesize it, say what it means, filter it. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I have select uh, uh, kind of specialists that I listen to. Uh, and so I think that's, you know, it kind of, it depends on what your overall goals are. And so if you're a generalist investor, uh, you generally want to find specialists in different fields. So there might be, say, you know, a Bitcoin specialist, for example, someone that, that knows the technology more than you, uh, that, that you basically can help filter out some of the noise in that space. Uh, you also might want, say, a bank analyst that's a specialist. And so they kind of sort through some of the plumbing issues that we're going through uh, in these past few years. You also might want uh, a political analyst to, to, to weigh the probabilities of different things passing and kind of, you know, uh, show how, you know, kind of what, what the legal limits are for certain of these programs. And so basically mm. by kind of, you know, picking people that are experts in their field and using those as filters, uh, you can actually have, uh, you know, basically you, you can extend your reach in terms of the things you can pay attention to without trying to be an expert in everything. And so that, that's how I've approached it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Really solid advice uh, for everyone listening. So question three then, what is the most memorable moment from your career to date? I don't know if there's a, a, a specific memorable moment. I would say probably mm. probably the launching of my my flagship research service, uh, just because it, it did so well. It did, it did better than I thought it would. Uh, and so I was, I was happy to see that, you know, uh, people found it valuable and that it that it's done so well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, that ultimate question then. If you could go back in time, what would be the top tip for your younger self? I would say to be flexible. Uh, and so I guess going back to the earlier question of how, you, how do you apply some of those value investing principles to some of those high growth, unprofitable companies? Uh, you know, for example, um, if, I, if I could see now, obviously, if I could go back, I basically would have just been a little bit more flexible with some of those really fast growing companies. Uh, and basically see kind of the, the forest through the trees with, with some of them. Yeah, okay, really interesting. So question five then, and this is sort of the opto question, we aim to speak to the individuals and the companies outperforming typical benchmark returns. So in your opinion, what is an investor's best source of alpha? I would say a long-term view. Uh, like we talked about, you know, basically the market is so short-term focused uh, because so many of their participants are, are getting judged on a monthly or quarterly basis uh, that if you, for whatever reason, have the luxury where you can, you can look out, you know, a year, two years, you know, three to five years, uh, and you can say, you know, I don't, I have no idea what's going to happen to this investment in the next six months, but I'm, 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 I have a high conviction that it's going to outperform over the next three to five years. Uh, that's where I think one of the last few places of alpha is. Uh, you know, just because algorithms and other things have, have taken out so much short-term alpha. And I think that that longer-term focus is really where there's still some edge to be had. In addition, I would say the second one would be uh, diversification and not in the normal sense, but in the sense that, you know, if, if, you're, if you're, say, comparing different bank stock, which ones should outperform, that's actually really challenging because the market is is really good at kind of uh, you know, you know, basically efficiently wading through all those different banks and deciding, you know, which, which you know, like what value should they all be? What are their different risks? Uh, whereas there are actually, you know, rather few participants that are, you know, kind of looking at, you know, 
domestic like U.S. stocks, uh, European stocks, Japanese stocks, emerging market stocks, uh, gold, silver, uranium, copper, Bitcoin, uh, bonds, and then saying, okay, out of these asset classes, which ones are more attractive for the next, say, two years and why? Uh, and then basically weighting the portfolio among all those different groups. There's basically, there's not a lot of money kind of chasing out those inefficiencies, in my opinion, especially when you combine macro with equities. So there are a lot of macro investors out there, uh, but they're often not looking at individual company le- uh, level. And so if you can basically combine that equity focus with that multi-asset, you know, multi-jurisdictional approach, that's where you can, I think, still find some relative things where something just clearly has better risk reward potential uh, just because it's not on a lot, not on a lot of people's radar. Yeah, absolutely. And the perfect insight, I think, to end the interview on. So it just leaves me to say thank you very much for joining us on the podcast, Lynn. It's been a real pleasure. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports, or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time.